I'm Laura Lund. Welcome to the Mind, Body, Spirit, a transformation podcast where I interview masters, seekers, and teachers in the quest for thriving, not just surviving. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Allen. She's a holistic psychologist, writer, retreat leader, and pleasure expert, working as a freedom fighter to help you subvert anything that keeps your mind, body, and spirit from shining bright. She blends Western psychology with Eastern practices to create a unique style she calls bodyfulness. This process helps you ignite your own innate intelligence for deeper healing, allowing for more vitality and joy in your body and your life. Her areas of expertise are relationship and intimacy issues, including sex therapy, life transitions, anxiety, depression, stress management, sleep difficulties, trauma, and loss. In addition to therapy, she offers chakra readings, private yoga, and dating coaching, Her new book titled, The Pleasure is All Yours, Reclaim Your Body's Bliss and Reignite Your Passion for Life, will be released later this year. And be sure to watch her recent TEDx talk. You can find more information about Dr. Rachel Allen at drrachelallen.com. Dr. Rachel Allen, thank you for joining me at the Mind, Body, Spirit podcast. My pleasure. I'm I'm so so happy. happy to chat with you today, Laura. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here. So I'd like to speak to you about the work you do in bodyfulness and also being a pleasure expert. Yes, so. yes. I'd lo- that's th- those are my jams. Um, and they're both uh, words or phrases that are not necessarily in the everyday vernacular or certainly they're not really what most people's therapists or psychologists would describe themselves as. Um And so I think some of my work is hopefully helping to expand what's possible in like the mental health realm beyond just sort of sitting and talk therapy and beyond just focusing on the mind. Um, And also helping with more of that kind of relational intelligence and including intelligence of just the different pleasures that we can find. Um, But first, yeah, I'll start with bodyfulness. Well, um, now, have you ever heard of mindfulness? <laughs> Just kidding. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, We're both yoga instructors. So mindfulness is kind of our yeah. right. thing that we try to practice, right? And I say it as a joke because I feel impart. like it's it's ubiquitous now, right? I mean, it's exploded. Um, right. The word it's is... In how we eat. It's in how we, you know, have sex. It's in how we do everything, right? Exactly. We try to be more mindful in this moment. Totally. Yeah. And I think what I think is wonderful is that it is bringing more of a consciousness around sort of being more intentional with, with kind of noticing what's coming up. You know, we have this like ticker clock of thoughts in our brain. Um, and so what I do like about mindfulness, it is saying pause, slow down and try to, without judgment, notice what's happening. But the problem is that it really still leaves us so focused in our, in our mental brain. Even the word itself has mind in it. Um, and American culture has historically been so focused on valorizing like our mind over our body, um, really denigrating the body as something that is primitive and just wanting to urges. And the mind is this, you know, elevated seat of reason. And that's where kind of everything starts and ends. Um, and what I think is so neat is that now research is looking at how 
we actually, our bodies have its own wisdom, its own language, and they also can store stress and trauma in a way that just thinking about cannot undo. So for example, I'll have clients that might have insights, you know, they'll have these mental insights, these aha moments, but then they don't understand why they are repeating patterns later. And I think that speaks to this disconnect that exists if we aren't integrating the mind and the body into into therapy, holistic health. Um, right. I mean, have you like, for example, ever had something like that too, where you like, aha. So talk about, so like repeating. So what kind of, ha- what kind of habits would you say would be repeated? Can you give an example of? Well, it can be anything from a morning ritual of like what we know we maybe should eat for breakfast, but what we choose instead to a relationship dynamic that repeats itself. Um, so if we aren't, well, and I guess I should say that, I mean, bodyfulness does start with, I, I describe it as having really three parts. It starts with having embodied mindfulness. So noticing mentally your patterns, but then also how it shows up in your physical body, because our body is, this is its own truth teller, um, and it stores emotional memory. So we may be playing out in our current relationships with say a a lover or partner something that our body has hung on to since we were in a we were in a relationship as a child with a caregiver so once we learn the language of our body and its reactive patterns and some of the cause and effect of what happens around us then we can go straight to the source in the body and by that I mean we can find ways to um, ground ourselves again. We can find ways to release the trauma in a safe way. Um, we can integrate our mind and our body to remind us that we're not that child anymore, that we're, we're here now. Um, but a lot of it, what's different between bodyfulness and mindfulness is that after that first level of embodied mindfulness, the second step is the discharge or the release or the movement. So it can be movement and, and release in the form of tears uh, sweating, but also things like bouncing, shaking, you know, exercise, massage, and getting into the fascia because a lot of the trauma is gets caught in the connective tissue. Um, so, yeah. So is this so is this something that someone can do on their own, or do they need really need a therapist to guide them through? I mean, I think most of us aren't really aware of the patterning and the traumas, you know, like. Mm-hmm. We, we might know some of the bigger traumas that have happened in our lives, mm-hmm. but uh, how that settled into our body, like, how do we, how do we unlock some of those yes. key areas? Right. Like, I think we can know something on a cognitive mental level, like, oh, I know that um, there was this bike accident that happened two years ago mentally, but then we might not realize how it can be still stored in our visceral body. So more. Um, you know, in our, in our breathing, in our gut, in, in muscular reactive patterns, um, in the ways that maybe we see something similar now that then makes our body react as if it's, it's happening now, even though it's just familiar to something from the past. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, I think what I usually start with is helping people just really get acquainted with the language of their body. So cause and effect, whether it be anything from, um, digestion and how foods make them feel to energy of other people to tapping into their intuition to gut instinct 
um, helping them connect to like not only their mental brain, but their heart brain, their gut brain, um, you know, how they feel when they're around other people or around nature, um, connecting to each of the senses. And this develops what's called interoception, which is basically a the fancy scientific lingo for deep inner body intelligence of all these inner working systems, including how it communicates with the mind. So as much as I'm kind of harping on mindfulness and the emphasis on the mind, you know, it's all, it is working Our all these body, the body wisdom is working in conjunction with our mind, of course. Um, but they're coming together. They're integrated. Mm-hmm. So I, I think about the two, the two times that I tried to do therapy. I, I have my teenagers are both in therapy, but uh, I think it's especially important for young people just to learn how to navigate this world and all their crazy emotions. But when I tried therapy, I've tried it twice and I guess I just didn't have the right fit, but as you know, for a therapist, Why? but uh, <laughs> I just felt, well, I just felt like there was no way I could get, like, I wanted to go deep and I wanted to go deep right away. And like, they were so surface and I don't know. Mm. I just, yeah, I don't know how that didn't, it just didn't work for me. I don't know if it was just that I didn't trust the therapist or, or how their process worked, you know, but uh, just getting into the deep Mm -hmm. work. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like engaging the body is a good way to do that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of therapists might be, I can tend to be direct sometimes too soon. And a lot of therapists aren't that way. And with good reason, because for some people it can scare them away. You know, you might be showing up ready. I mean, as a yoga teacher and and, and a holistic, you know, health practitioner, you already are more advanced than the average person as far as just, you know, what your self-awareness level. And so, but I hear you, like, I always want to make the most of people's time. I feel like they're, this is, their time is valuable. They're paying money. So I like to dig right in it. And sometimes it scared people away. So, you know, they, especially because I also work with sexual health and relationship issues, but people will come in, you know, maybe, maybe years after they want to, to deal with something related to sexual health, because there's so much repression and stigma that, um, you know, they'll have multiple sessions with me before they even bring up that that's really what they were actually coming in for. So I make a habit of, of asking in the beginning. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's hard to find the right therapist style for the right person at that time. And it's definitely kind of a nuanced process. Um, but my hope is that therapy, mental health therapy, really starts to include the body more, starts to, whether it be with breathing, with moving, with guided meditations, with, with therapists giving their clients, you know, suggestions or even assignments of things to do that also engage their body intelligence in between sessions um, to really experience it viscerally. And that, that's where the learning is. Kind of like as a yoga teacher, you wouldn't just talk to people about yoga to teach it. Like you get them on the mat, right? Right, right. It's a teacher all of its own. Do you know other therapists that work in this manner? Yeah, I definitely do. There's actually a consultation group that I started with some other people in the Twin Cities that do. It started mainly with people who incorporate yoga. Um, But similar to me, they've also expanded a bit. Some of them have expanded a bit to incorporate other somatic body-based stuff. And then I feel like on the coasts, for sure, like when I was in L.A. last year, you know, there's like a big hub there. Um, 
I mean, Minneapolis is definitely progressive for the Midwest. And so, um, but, but yeah, on the coast, it's even more likely to find people who would say that they're somatic. And so when you see somatic, it means like they also incorporate um, the some sort of, yeah. Although there's a lot of different techniques out there and bodyfulness is really an integration of a lot of different ones. So that's where I have to kind of bow down and pay homage to a lot of teachers that have come before me that even have led me to incorporate, you know, to, to integrate, to come up with this method. Yeah. Well, for myself as a body worker, I see, you know, I got into these yoga, you know, massage, all these therapies because I needed to ground in my body. Mm -hmm. And that was how I did it. I also had a lot of back pain, but I see my clients come in and they're just so unaware. Like the, the first thing every person says on the massage table is, oh, I didn't even realize I was so tight. Mm. Right. They all say that. So how can the average person just start to become more aware in their daily life of this bodyfulness? Yes. Excellent question. I mean, it starts, it starts with that embodied mindfulness. So listening, slowing down, going through each of your senses, like what, what are each of my senses telling me right now? And um, when I taste this or touch this, you know, what, what is it telling me? So that really paying attention to the feedback loops, um, same with eating. That's kind of another good example because, you know, we all know how different foods and tastes, um, agree or disagree with us. Um, I think being sure to not override our body's messages, for example, sleep, people are constantly just cramming in caffeine to override what their body's telling them. So some of it is to tune out the cultural messages that say we should we should look a certain way, act a certain way, defy what is naturally human. You know, we're not meant to be sitting all day. We're not meant to be staring at computers all day. We're meant to be outside. We're meant to laugh and hug. Granted, with the pandemic, obviously, everybody's compromised there. Um, but And I think look to children, look to animals, because they are much more naturally intuitive and instinctual and listening to their bodies and they don't have the filter as much you know we maybe as parents that's what we're trying to train them to do you know to some extent we gotta we all gotta have a filter but i mean they say they say what they really mean and feel and and are much more in that kind of beautiful primal self um whereas as adults we get buttoned up we don't want you know and emotions are in the body too that's a big part of body intelligence um, a lot of people don't realize emotions and feelings are technically two different things. Our emotions are more that that visceral origin in our body, and then our mental labeling of them is is technically the feeling that we assign. Um, so I always suggest that clients, you know, so you notice this tightness in your chest. If you had to kind of name an emotion around it, what would it be? Is it threat? Is it uncertainty? You know. Or in your gut, what are you noticing? Is there an emotion you can assign to that, or even a color, or a type of breath that you notice could help soothe the belly. And I'll, guide, I'll also give them suggestions for different types of breathing. Um, and I think yoga is amazing, of course, for helping with that body intelligence because you can really notice right side versus left side and kind of in all those different newfangled ways, you can kind of pause and stop and restart. Um, so, and, and I think just engaging in more play, that's another thing I suggest adults do, like, trying to get more into your playful creative self that's a, like a really beautiful way to also sort of 
rediscover in the body. Um, even things like dream recall, you know, it's, it's much more of a nonlinear, uh, a style of approaching one's life that um, I think is really helpful for a lot of people who get stuck in their head. Yeah. Playfulness and creativity, I think, are huge. Absolutely. I think a lot of people think of themselves as not creative, mm -hmm. but we all are creative. It just may look in different ways to some people. They may not draw or paint, but that doesn't mean they're not creative in their work or in their content, you know, that they're putting out into the world or uh, there's so many different ways of creating. Right. It's, it's like, and I think what it's all in us, it gets buried. It gets buried behind stress and the sleep deprivation and the to-do list and the, I don't have enough time and the, who would I do it with? Or, um, you know, cause we don't have a parent plopping down some pencil, colored pencils and stuff for us, but um, it can be meditative too. It can be meditative. So even though a lot of my focus in bodyfulness is very like movement based, there's also times in which it's about containment, like practicing containment, like maybe it's curling into a ball or a child's pose, or it's having a weighted blanket or, um, or just even like putting your hands in your armpits and sort of um, rubbing your arms. I mean, there's also different things that are very much about like, not so much the release, but first establishing some grounding and safety um, but what's amazing is that it's, it's all right there in our body. Once we learn the different tools and experiment and it's free, you don't need money. You don't need a prescription. You know, um, it's unlike some of these messages we get that this, you know, secret to happiness lies in this potion or that pair of genes. It's something that we all innately have. We just have forgotten how to tap into it as we get older in these harried lives we lead. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. First of all, I'd like to go back to what you said about putting your hands in your armpits and then rubbing. Mm. What well, well, yeah, I guess I kind of merged two different methods. Like one is you can, for containment, for just trying to feel like you can sort of establish a centered groundedness when things are overwhelming. You can put your hands in your armpits. So I'm actually doing it right now. You just can't see. Um, and you could, but then another one is you can take your hands out of your armpits and then sort of rub them on the outsides of your upper arms. So your hands cross over to the opposite shoulder, sort of like if you're cold outside and you're just rubbing your arms. Um, same with, I like this. I like these methods a lot yeah. because a lot of people, a lot of people come to see me, not, a, not even for the massage. They come for the touch, mm -hmm. like they're single people that you're not getting or maybe they're in a relationship with somebody who is not very physical and they know they need physical touch but can you get that physical touch by doing some of these things as well well yeah physical touch so so powerful um it's really it can be life or death even um and and actually our own it's certainly not the same but our own physical touch releases oxytocin in our own body yeah that's what i wanted to mm -hmm. know okay cool our own physical touch does do that so that's why sometimes you know maybe i'll be guiding a meditation and you know it's, it's a there's a difference between someone saying oh breathe in and out of your heart <clears throat> and there's a difference between that and saying bring your hands to your heart center spread the fingers feel your skin and now breathe in and out of your heart that difference, I mean, if everybody could try that right now, the difference between just taking a couple breaths into the upper chest versus bringing your hands there. Um, and, you know, I think it's like a minimum of 
you know, 20 seconds or more is where not only with your own touch, but somebody else, touch from somebody else, elicits those attachment hormones that are so powerful. Um, once in a while, I'll end a session so with a couple sounds- and have them do a 20 second hug to help when it's been a particularly hard session. So it makes sense to me that we would be able to regulate ourselves. So, you know, we, we live in a world where cortisol is so high and everybody is so stressed. So just taking a few seconds to put your hands on your heart and breathe into it, I would think would have to reduce your cortisol. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. It's about, it's, you know, we, we do have, at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips, these ways to change our neurochemistry. Um, We think that it comes from, you know, the neurochemicals of food or pharmaceuticals or that sort of thing, or just other people. But um, I do think it's empowering when we learn that we have these other fingertips. Granted, we need to have a practice of doing it. Um, And like any practice, we have some weeks or days or phases where it's better than others. You know, even given what I do for a living, I have no doubt my moments where I forget, um, I get too busy and I'm like, oh, I have not even stopped and just paused and like taken a full breath. This um, is the whole so. reason I started this podcast is to get more tools <laughs> under my tool belt. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I love this conversation. Um, so I have a doctor client, he's a medical doctor and he says, you know, we were talking about this yesterday, like tuning into your body you know, meeting your body's desires and, you know, the need for sleep and overworking and all these things. But he, he brings up the point, what if you can't, what if you can't do those things? You know, you can't just sleep because mm -hmm. you're tired and you can't just Mm -hmm. stop working because you've already worked eight hours. Right. You know, there's times when you have to soldier on and you just can't stop, you know, or take a break. Yes, yes. And I think what's also amazing about our bodies is how much they will, they're always sort of rooting for our survival and they can, they can flip the, their own little switch and go yeah, grin in your teeth, bend, you know, grin and bear it and get through. But, um, but the, the body always presents its bill at some point later. So it's not a problem to have some of those phases. It's just a fact of life that, yeah, we have to, we have to grind through shit. Um, and suffering happens and we, you know, we can't just be luxuriating in the pleasures of life. Um, and a lot of my research talks about how I, the reason I now call myself a pleasure expert is because I've also learned kind of how to be an expert in people's pain and we have to navigate both. Um, but what I will say is that our body is really amazing at tolerating those tough times, but to a point. And if we don't rest, um, and give ourselves permission to to really be in a place of ease and figure out what's in our little toolbox of of ease and self soothing. Things will break down. We will get ulcers and and migraines and and injuries and agitation and insomnia and plenty of people have it. Um, and then it takes a lot longer to dig our way out. Um, so it's it's like anything, kind of trying to keep up on it. All right, I've had a month of insane work hours. I have to have this week where I say no to other things and I have a staycation or, and other countries are so much better at this part of what I talk about, about in my book is that Americans are particularly sick um, because of our overworking and because of the um, kind of the facade of looking and acting a certain way and how we're not supposed to be emotional and 
express ourselves, you know, where other countries, you know, they sing and they dance and it's their therapy and they come together and there's more community and it can help undo some of the suffering. Whereas we have this sort of rugged individualism that, that is really adding to our sickness. And that's probably a whole nother podcast topic, but um, yeah. So how, so these, these short little practices that we talked about just a minute ago, putting the hands under the arms, uh, breathing into that space or the hands on the heart and breathing there or rubbing your arms, how impactful, like just say you're working too much, you're tired, you can't, you know, take a break. How impactful is it to do a few of these practices throughout that time because you can do them in just a few seconds you know a minute or less no that's an excellent excellent point because um and it reminds me of how so I start every session with my clients with doing a grounding meditation and it's usually not more than five minutes sometimes it's only two or three and almost every time I hear people say oh wow that I really needed that that made a difference and so what I like to point out is, oh, really? So you, those two, three minutes just made that big of a difference. Why don't you do it on your own? Why did you need me to lead it? You know, and, and I think that that um, we over, we, we complicate things. Sometimes we think it needs to be like this. We need to be on some, you know, TRX machine for an hour before we get the benefit when really, and that's a wonderful, that can be a wonderful thing at times too, but a little bit can go a long way. It's more about the consistency. So if you throughout your day, you have a busy work day, but if you every 25, 30 minutes, you stop and you do a forward bend, you do a side stretch, you do, you know, five big belly breaths right there, that one minute, you just reset your nervous system and told the stress response, you know, that it didn't need to be in the stress response. And sprinkling that in through the day is actually really powerful when it becomes a practice. So we actually don't need as much time as we think. We just need to be a little more dedicated to to doing it more often. Can you take us through one of these short short practices? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, so, so people are sitting so much. So if somebody say they had two minute, two minute break, I would say stand up, bring your feet kind of wider apart to ground yourself. Um, and then it, let your arms down by your side and then sway side to side that releases some of the muscles in the spine. So you're letting the arms dangle, you go side to side. I would then say bend the knees to do like a rag doll and then and kind of let the uh, back decompress. Um, and then roll on up, I would say even just like shaking research shows that actually like bouncing and shaking can also really shake out of the nervous system. Some of the little stagnant energy. Um, I'm a big fan also of just like real belly breathing because, you know, our, our gut brain there really wants that kind of prana oxygen energy. So having then a few belly breaths. Um, and then I would also say like for me, my jaw is like a go to stress place and we all everybody has theirs. But so find out what yours is. And so for me, I would say and for anybody else that is their jaw, I would open and shut my jaw a few times. Also, even just bringing your gaze to look at the horizon or to look at the sky rather than the computer that can also sort of reset the body and kind of and bring it from the time traveling mind into the here and now. Um, and then, like I said, so touch, bringing touch and especially kind of to your center. Um, and everybody's different in where they're sort of holding that tension more. So it's nice when I work with people and I have the advantage of maybe telling them to do something with their ankles because that's a big area where they hold their stress or 
at their brow. Um, so, so yeah, it's experimenting with some of those different things that just seem like animal movements too, too can, um, can make a difference. Yeah. So I, you know, I personally tend to surround myself with positive people because I can get real heady and pensive and I can be a little bit brooding and, and, uh, we're delicate flowers. Remember? I'm a delicate flower. (laughs) Yes, I am a delicate flower. So I have to surround myself with people that remind me to be uplifted all the time. And that's one reason I'm doing this podcast as well, because I know Mm -hmm. so many cool people that have so many great ideas to share. So, uh, what can you say about pleasure and bringing the pleasure back? Uh, and balancing that you mentioned earlier, balancing pleasure and pain. So Mm -hmm. how, how can, can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, right. I think that given that this is a really challenging time and has been, I mean, it's been chronic now. We're going on almost a year. Um, it is, people are probably really blocked from, you know, the ease, the, the little simple pleasures and the larger pleasures and some of the joy that was more readily accessible before. Um, and so you know, I, part of my work is also helping the word pleasure not be so reductionist in the U.S. to be associated only with sex. Um, sexual and erotic pleasure is amazing, and I do work with that. But also the problem is if you aren't able to give yourself permission and tap into other daily simple pleasures like um, your senses, you know, closing your eyes as you taste your food, um, the simple pleasure of really, you know, connecting with nature, um, petting the fur of your animal, of, of, you know, taking a bath. If you can't luxuriate in some of those simple pleasures, you're probably not going to have a very satisfying than erotic um, pleasure life. Um, so not that that's the only means to the end. I mean, pl- what, what I researched is that little pleasures in our life actually adds to our resilience. So we've associated pleasure as something that's frivolous, that detracts us from being productive. But when we sprinkle it into our lives, we are more resilient. We are more compassionate and compassionate of others. Um, And sharing in our pleasures with others also helps with that kind of uh, increased altruism. And we need that, right, more than ever in our disconnected era. Doesn't it rewire the brain as well? Right. The more pleasure that we have, it, it rewires the brain to have more pleasure. Yes. Is that true? I think, well, it, I mean, I think being familiar with pleasures, that yeah, opens us up to them more. It's a, it's a fine line between, um, you know, we can't always chase that next pleasure hit, you know. So I think that it's it's like anything. It's a balancing act between knowing it's our birthright to have pleasures of different kinds in our life whether it be sensual, creative and playful or flow states or in relationships and intimacy, it's our birthright. But also to be a mature adult, we have to learn that um, running from pain and always seeking pleasure actually causes more suffering too. So part of what I help people with and what bodyfulness does is here, if you have these tools to self-regulate, then you, you aren't necessarily seeking like kind of pleasure out just as a, as an, way to anesthetize or to numb or to run and hide you actually can kind of really it's more of a way to wake up because you're not so afraid of of, you're not hiding 
and that's kind of getting yeah. existential here. Um, but it's like anything kind of having, having a balance, but, but I think one of the pleasures that I've been trying to remind people and clients of is, you know, find humor. If it's, even if it's just like animal videos or it is, it's watching a, a child or, um, it's finding your favorite comedian. I mean, we bless comedians right now that still can kind of take the darkness and turn and bring in some of the light. Um, um, pleasures, you know, of more people are finding pleasures in cooking at home and that's a very sensual pleasure and act. Um, um, you know, and of course getting outside and moving is just so essential. And so trying to like find the pleasures in that, um, despite the weather, despite, despite whether we can enjoy it with other people. Um, and, and, but yeah, just giving ourselves permission that we, we deserve it. And it's actually good for us. It's not, it doesn't mean we're lazy or we're selfish. A lot of women, I think, get caught and feel guilt for giving themselves um, some of the simple pleasures in life that, that they deserve, but it really definitely makes a difference for them to have the ability to be more resilient when they're caring for others. So my, my same client, the physician that I mentioned earlier, he wanted me to ask you yeah. about, uh, about as, as we get older, you know, part of the excitement of pleasure is the first time we do something mm -hmm. like for instance the first time we have sex or the first time or with a particular partner or the first time we go to a restaurant and the experience is so great but as we get older it's less uh the pleasures become less and less like the first time is less and less and and uh there's not you're not able to enjoy as much pleasure as the first time Right. And or so, as we get older, mm -hmm. as many pleasures, right? Well, I think that maybe for that particular situation, like that first time you eat like molten lava cake, <laughs> maybe, maybe that first <laughs> bite is like, wow, you know, it's kind of like when you see little kids or toddlers take a bite and their just eyes pop out. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, a year later, that first bite won't also be amazing. So I, I don't know if, if, if it works across the board for everything. I think that when we revisit some things, it can be like really a, quite a magnificent pleasure again. But if, yeah, if it's something we're doing all the time, it loses its special quality. Um, and so we do need novelty in our lives. In long-term relationships, that's a big thing that I talk with couples about. Like if they don't have any sort of novelty and that brings that type of pleasure, then of course people just get stagnant and bored with one another. Um, but yeah, our brains want dopamine and we want, we want that excitement. Sometimes we just have to get more creative about finding it and we can find it too. And I mean, in, in art and in culture and, you know, there's new music coming out all the time and, and new expressions, you know, I mean, the, the artists out there, you know, kind of keep helping us find new ways to read delight. But, um, but yeah, things, things change with age. Our skin receptors don't feel the intensity of touch even in the same way. I think it's starting, I don't know, after age 30, it already starts going down. So that, that kiss might not feel exactly the same at 60 as it did at 15. Um, um, but it doesn't mean it goes away. And I think that maybe it's about just finding kind of peace and ease in some of the simpler things that it doesn't have to be about it being all about the fireworks always to feel happy. Um, yeah. And I think the more that you surround yourself with 
you know, like-minded, positive people, that in itself kind of upregulates the system and Mm -hmm. allows you to have more joy, right? And being more in your body also allows you to have more pleasure. Right, right. I mean, people- Just connecting with, Mm -hmm. like you talked about uh, on your Instagram video, not just your brain in your head, but your heart brain and your gut brain. Yes, yes. So all three have their own nervous system and they all communicate with one another. I, I love learning about that kind of stuff. Um, Me too. Because it's like, oh, yes, I've known that. But now science is proving it. it it's it's great. It's, um, it's an ex- I mean, I think it's an exciting time. Um, granted, you know, monks that, you know, Buddhist monks have like long known certain things about, you know, mindfulness, for example, that now, you know, research is confirming. But um, it's part of what gives it legitimacy and helps more people engage in some of these activities. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we're all, we, every, every person is unique and like what our, our unique set of kind of tools and, and tips and movements, but, um, you know, the more bodyful people are, this is what I will say, people who are comfortable in their bodies and they're not as self-conscious and they kind of let themselves, you know, really, yeah, like kind of be more free in their body. I tend to be magnetic. We're drawn to those individuals, right? Like they aren't um, so, yeah, self-occupied and they're, they move more freely. They laugh more freely. They engage in us. And they're, you know, I think that that is kind of the next wave of, of my third layer of bodyfulness is how it really does help with connection with others. We're more our authentic self and shine our light more. And that kind of leads others to want to engage. And that's kind of what this is all about, to connect, to feel connected within and connected to other people. Um, so one bodyful person at a time can kind of help lead the way for us just to sort of be real, keep it real and um, open up with other people. Yes, agreed. Yeah, bodyfulness. The more relaxed we are, the more we attract yeah. And, us. you know, I, I understand we can't always be connected to our bodies when we're in pain. We shut down when we're sick. We shut down. You know, there's it's a practice, but it's OK sometimes when we're you know, we might not love being in our body. So I'm, I'm not saying bodyfulness means that we're feel good and happy and jubilant in our body all the time. Um, but it's that we respect but, its language and we listen to it um, and what it has to say. I feel sometimes that the pain brings us back to our body. So for instance, you know, I may not be listening to my body. I'm doing too much body work. The next thing I know I have tennis elbow Mm. because I wasn't listening. Yeah. You know, so it's a matter of it. So the body's always calling us back. So it might be with pain. It might be with, you know, you break down and get sick. It means you need to rest. Right. Mm. If I have tennis elbow, I need to work less. I can't ignore that. So I think the body's constantly calling us back to it. And mm-hmm. if we don't listen, then it starts to break down in these ways. Yeah. Oh yeah. Eventually it always, it always does. And then you just have to work like twice as hard to figure out ways to repair. Um, it takes a lot longer and something I means once in a while it's too late, the the disease has led to disease in a way that, you know, isn't repairable. Um, and it, you know, I think we need to not get so stressed out that like, oh gosh, I have to, everything I kind of eat or breathe or, you know, my movement, you know, gets so obsessed with it being perfect. Um, you know, our bodies are pretty good at also just kind of 
dealing with some of the crud that comes our way too. Um, as long as we do have, you know, connection with other people, connection with movement and release and, um, and rest. That's a big one. Can you, can you speak to, uh, like, I know trauma and loss is kind of clumped together, but like loss of a a loved one that's, you know, not just, you know, not just the kind of loss where your elderly grandparent dies, but the kind of loss where somebody dies very young and unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to that kind of loss? Well, I think that from a body perspective, well, there's, there's the bodily uh, impact and the mental impact. Um, and it's, it's, it can feel like a real chronic stress response mode in the body. And that can actually impact kind of the brain. There can also be kind of trauma brain um, in, in that people can be maybe more hypervigilant or even just sort of space out and zone out. Because I think the body's in overwhelm. The body and brain can be in such overwhelm at the shock of something that it can't even really track. It's, it's almost like it, dis- it really dissociates because it's so... It's very surreal. Mm-hmm. It's very so. Today is the seven-year anniversary of my daughter's. Death. Oh, today! Wow. And that I just remember that it seems like in the grieving process, you always think you're gonna cross the finish line and get to the other side, but it really never happens. It just cha- it just shifts or changes. Right, and I think that day-to-day life it feels a little bit easier slowly over time because there's just that sort of new associations, the new routines, the new rituals, but yeah, it's not a linear grief is certainly not a linear process. That's for sure. It, it loops back and there are reminders and, and memories and seasons and anniversaries. And um, it's because our, yeah, our, our body and mental memory, it really hangs on to things that were traumatic. It's harder to let them go. And it's all a way to, for our mind and body to try to keep us safe in the future. So that's why it, it doesn't leave us in the way of something, you know, much more minor would. So it, what I think yeah. it boils down to is really like patience and self-compassion and, um, um, you know, not being impatient with ourselves or expecting it just to, to just, just cope and move on, you know, just, that soldier on idea with grief does not work. It just doesn't work. It's it, the grief says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you know, I need attention. And it's like that idea of like, to name it is to tame it, to really name what you're experiencing helps dissolve or helps the, the body mind system feel better with the grief than ignoring it. Ignoring does not work. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that there's, it's a definitely for me, I'm a different person. Like there's, there's no going back to the person I was. Mm -hmm. There's just that I'm just a different person now. I'm more introverted, I would say than previously, like previously I'd say I was, you know, slightly more extroverted, but it's definitely made me more introverted. Yeah. I felt different on so many ways. I mean, I know the body, you know, every seven years are, body is completely rebuilt you know we have a whole new body that's so cool every seven years <laughs> I know <laughs> but and it's been seven years today since since this death but uh wow, yeah. yeah I feel different on so many levels so but yeah forever changed I mean that is there are aspects of life where we are where we aren't 
the same. I mean, we, we are have growing wisdom and insights and maybe, you know, the hope is I think that after there has been major trauma that we're never the same from that we, there's a way to integrate it into our lives that kind of give it more, you know, some added meaning purpose. There's definitely more meaning. Like I just appreciate everybody in my life so much more. All my friends, I'm just so grateful for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's I'm so grateful for the living <laughs> in a way that I um, probably took for granted before. Yeah, right. that's that sort of meaning is it's I, I almost think of it as like a spiritual it's a spiritual path, really. Mm-hmm. To derive some of the spiritual aspect of a loss like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's and and nobody else can you know really know exactly what it's like other than you know that our ourselves because it's unique to us. So it's hard because sometimes it can feel so isolating and and lonely. But yes, there are other people who have you know either lost children or a spouse or um, so that can sometimes Siblings, be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So are there body practices to help with grief specific specific to grief? Well, I that are yeah. different from the things we've already spoken about. Well, I, I mean, I guess I think of definitely that like our heart brain that stores so many of our emotions, you know, that um, and, and connected to relationships, you know, so sometimes having containment and then maybe alternating containment with also some heart openers. And um, and I think that, I mean, tears are actually as much as people never want to cry. They're really a brilliant Uh, method of our body to release the grief. And so I say cry, 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 cry. It it, detox. Yeah, it's detoxifying. And also notice how, you know, we feel kind of replenished in a way sometimes after we do that. And that's such an example, though, of of how our emotional body is designed to have these ways to help us. And yet we, we deny or block them. We hold back the tears or we feel shame for Oh, not me. I'm a crier. (laughs) Yeah. I I cried that for, I cried that whole first year so much. I said, I said, I cried away all my tears. I didn't have any tears left. Well, and that was when it was meant to, meant to be moved through. So you did it well. I mean, you did your body um, and, and spirit a service by like allowing it at that time. So what about getting upside down? Does getting upside down help like, you know, headstand, shoulder stand, those are known and yoga as the king and the queen of asana. So does it help, would you say getting upside down would help with grief? Well, sure, because it's an embodied experience. Um, so you're going straight to the source of the emotion. Um, I mean, and, and the main thing too, that is it's, we know scientifically that inversions help with like lymphatic drainage. And so, you know, our immune system and our emotional system are bound up together. So it's sort of that with that lymphatic drainage is can be this emotional <laughs> drainage as well, which again helps with resiliency. So embodiment and pleasure practices are really, it, it helps us forge forward. And um, so, yes, I think that, you know, unless somebody has some sort of medical condition, I can't imagine legs up the wall is, is contraindicated for, for anybody. Um, yeah. That's the easy place to start. Just put your butt to the wall, legs up. Absolutely. Wall. Yeah. And then it just gives or, you a different perspective too. You know, you sort of chill out, um, give the blood flow, you know, a little bit of a, a different emphasis because you're, we're typically on our feet or sitting. So all the drain drainage down or blood that way. Um, and I just, what I tell everybody is just experiment for yourself. Like with does, what types of inversions feel good to you? What types of poses, 
um, because every body is a little different and different each day. But um, yeah, that's a good one to start with. Yeah, but sometimes I think we need to also get out of our comfort zone to make a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as far as I mean, I think build up to with when it comes to movement practices. I mean, I yeah, some things need to be more intense. I mean, I, there's there is um, you know different types of um, like trauma informed weightlifting um, instructors. Um, oh. um, I interviewed one for my book, um, you know, and so it, for some people, weightlifting is not going to help with their trauma. For some people, it's going to be just what they need, or they're at a place where that kind of empowerment. Um, and that physical inner strength that translates to their emotional strength is really spot on and just what they need. So that's what I think is great. There's all these different things that we can do. Some that are going to be more, you know, are going to be so comfy, like legs up the wall and some that are going to be kind of like more intense. The weightlifting makes sense to me because after the, the strong period of grieving there, it almost feels like a kind of a tearing down of your body. And so it makes sense to me that you would want to rebuild it. Yes. Yes. And just, yeah, doing it slowly, safely, steadily, not, you know, not pushing, but, um, cause I think that's the thing is that we can have this sort of like no pain, no gain attitude a bit in America. So as a trauma informed psychologist, for me, I'm all, I'm all for like, yeah, get that vitality, get that, lift that weight, but, but just build up to it. You know, I mean, I, Hey, after somebody, as somebody who's gotten so many injuries from weightlifting, I'm now a fan of like, right. you know, maybe just, yeah, work your way up. Um, who, are we, what are we trying to prove here? We're not going to win some weightlifting contest. So just, just do it more in a way that, <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe some people are entering those, but um, yeah. I mean, it, and a lot of things, things that I suggest people do, it's, you know, don't focus on the outcome. Like sometimes we really just need to be in the process and that's part of a creative mind too. So if you are going to say a strength class and you're, it's not about anybody seeing you or entering a contest, you know, yeah, maybe you would do it differently and more with a creative or curious mind. Um, and with yoga usually encourages, you know, more of a curious mind too, to find your right balance. Um, so then I get, I get that some people are turned off by the word yoga. So that's where I remind people, like even just foam rolling or other sorts of bouncing and shaking, um, dancing, all those other types of movement too. It doesn't have to just be yoga just because that's the one that I usually know the best and guide people through. Um, so something for everyone. Definitely. How about, uh, can you speak about your book? Yes. It's coming it's out in what, the summer it, months? It's Do coming out this summer. I finished the first draft like last summer, so it'll be a year by the time it comes out. But I, um, it's called The Pleasure is All Yours. Um, it's Reclaim Your Body's, that's the subtitle is Reclaim Your Body's Bliss and Reignite Your Passion for Life. And so, um, you know, this summer, who knows where we'll be at with the pandemic, but I do think that the timing is good as far as helping people to reclaim body connection and some passion, because one of the things I've noticed among a lot of my clients is just they, they feel a lack of life force energy. Um, like some of the initial anxiety of the pandemic is gone and now there's just a lot more lethargy and just sort of feeling blah and unmotivated. And um, so, but the book talks about bodyfulness. It kind of goes through it step-by-step. Step. It also helps explain just some of the barriers to being connected to our body and being connected to pleasure based on our history in the U S our history we're, you know, the U S is one of the most repressed 
countries in the world. So um, I do talk a little bit about, you know, how, what do we do with these messages that we've received about our bodies, about our rights to pleasure and our sexual health um, and kind of helping people to first learn how, you know, th that doesn't define us. Like we, um, you know, and, and help let go of some of the stigma and shame around the body we think we're supposed to have and the sort of uh, sexual um, morals we're, we think we're supposed to have. And so abandoning some of those to come into our own sexual health, our own relationship with our body. Um, and, um, and I also bring in some Ayurvedic medicine and some talk of the chakras, um, as well as bodyfulness to help kind of people to embody f what I call like the four main pleasures that we have. So they're sensual, creative and playful. There's um, more liveliness and flow states and there's erotic and sexual. There's also altruistic pleasure. I just don't go into that as much in the book in part because the book is also aimed at women who tend to already be self-sacrificing and, and yes, may get pleasure from being altruistic, but also need to kind of turn it inward to reconnect with their own pleasures. So yes, women who do too much. Yeah, too much for others at the expense of just their own needs being met. And men, there are mm -hmm. men that do that too. It's not just the women. Right. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. Okay, well, summer. how can, yay. So maybe we can have another chat when that's about to be released. Um, how can people stay in touch with you or get find out more about your work? Well, my website, drrachelallen.com. I also have my professional um, Instagram account that focuses on relationship, bodyfulness and relationship and sexual health is called Pleasure Expert. So it's pleasure underscore expert. Um, those are probably the best ways to find me. Um, and then I'm, through my website, you can get on an email list and I send out quarterly newsletters of offerings. And you can also find the TEDx talk on oh yes the Dr. Rachel Allen website as well. Yes, that's called Pleasure to the People. Um, on it's on YouTube. Uh, there's I know there's a lot of TED talks and TEDx talks out there. So, but yeah, if you look up Pleasure to the People, it should be the only one. Great, thank you so this much. This is fun. I love talking about this kind of stuff, and I love that you're doing Me? this podcast. Thank you for thank doing you. it. Yes, thank you so much. And I hope to chat with you again soon. Okay, Laura. Bye-bye. Okay.